So I don't know if listeners, if y'all know this, but one of the, maybe like the food that Austin is famous for is breakfast tacos. Well, there's a lot of them. I mean, like also barbecue, but that's Texas in general. Exactly. (laughs) I feel like breakfast tacos is specifically Austin and it's also so fucking random. First off, apparently don't call them breakfast burritos. They're apparently very different, even though they are. It's just the fold it anyway. They're different. But Don't do it. My world has been changed since Why? We've been here. Because breakfast oh, tacos oh, I get like that. since moving to Austin. Because yeah, yeah. I mean breakfast food's my favorite food. And I don't know, I'd get I don't think I've ever had a breakfast taco before moving here. Yeah, I don't think um, you did. But it's great. I mean, nice homemade tortilla, egg, cheese, a little bit of bacon, sometimes potato. Ugh. Mm, they're so good. So good with salsa. Mm. I had so some this weekend I, too. I miss we, Austin's breakfast tacos. There was just a lot more variety. Well, um, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I am Brittany. And I'm Tyler. Let's get off the subject of breakfast tacos. I know because you're I just making starving. me want them. Well, I'm going to jump straight into Patreon because we have a lot of brand new Blood and Wine family members to thank. Yes. And we have just a lot of a lot of Patreon news. So if y'all are not Patreon members, you should absolutely go check it out. But to our newest Cabernet Sauvignon convicts, Kelsey and Heather, thank y'all so much for joining the family. Welcome! Uh, to our newest Merlot Mafia member. We don't have a... Just to our newest Merlot Mafia, Delena. Thank you so much. You're amazing. You're all amazing. All of you are. Every single one of you. And to our newest Chardonnay Syndicates. Syndicate members? Syndicates. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like centipedes. Ew. No. But (laughs) Regina and Holly, thank y'all so much. Welcome to the family. Five Patreoners in one episode. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all are fucking incredible you're blowing us our way with your amazing support and we seriously can't thank you enough and for those of y'all who don't know what patreon is but you want to get in on the action you want to join the blood and wine family and be as awesome as kelsey heather delena regina holly and many others you should head to patreon.com slash blood and wine pod and check it out. There you can find our bi-weekly murder minis, which are just mini-episodes only for our Patreon community. You can also check out our reward system, where depending on your level, you can become a director of an episode, where we do your topic or we do your case. Um, handwritten notes from us. Just a lot of fun little goodies that are all Patreon exclusive. Yes, and on that, I actually have a Patreon announcement. So, as Tyler was just saying, we have our murder mini episodes, which are every other week, we just introduce a couple more murder cases. So we're giving a little bit more to all the true crime fans of ours. But... We decided we want to do something for the wine lovers as well. We know that a lot of you guys are being introduced to a lot of new wines uh, through our podcast. And so we want to start giving you even more information about wine. So starting here in a few weeks, we're going to launch our new soon-to-be-named wine episodes 
These will also be Patreon only. So in these wine episodes, we're going to review wines that we have, you know, outside of an episode, just introducing more wines to you guys. But also we may do some episodes where we're introducing different grape varietals, like going deep on, on Cabernet Sauvignon and telling you guys where it's from, where it originated, where it's grown now, what's special about that grape. Also, Something that may be interesting, maybe not super interesting, but like the difference in grapes you eat and grapes that are made for wine. They're not the same thing. So just little tidbits of information that we'd like to share with you guys. So we're going to start those, like I said, in a couple weeks for Patreon only. So you guys will obviously still be getting the murder minis. Those are still happening. This is just another edition. Yes. And with that... While you're at it, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, you know, just check it out. You'll get notified every Tuesday. Um, we're actually we're on like all major podcast platforms. So whatever ones you can subscribe to, just go ahead and do it and you'll know when new episodes are out. Boom. And in keeping with this episode's apparent theme of Patreon (laughs) is our topic, which is actually a Patreon picks from Aubrey. And this one is probably going to be, I would say, one of our most different or out there episodes yet. I 100% agree. I think it Um, is definitely going to be. I love this topic because I got to do a case that I didn't know if it would ever fit within this podcast but it's something i've been so interested in and finally got the opportunity to do it so yeah i love it um and the topic is paranormal murders yes so which as someone who doesn't listen to that many podcasts i didn't know that true crime and paranormal podcasts like that's definitely a thing oh absolutely That's like really common mm-hmm. there's ones that do both had no idea yeah but Super excited. Side note, I am super skeptical, like, about all of this. I, I'm i not someone who believes in ghosts or Bigfoot or, I don't know. I do believe in aliens because I can't how could imagine they not how big the universe is. And it's just us. I'm like, mm, no. But I don't believe in aliens of, like, Independence Day kind of things where they, you know, fly around in ships and visit us. Well, and we've talked about so. how I'm, like, scared of aliens because of movies like that. Like, they freak me out yeah. so much. Yeah. They're beady red eyes. I just can't even. All out of cans. <laughs> if you were a recycling center, you'd be out of business because you don't have any cans left. I have no cans left. I absolutely can not with aliens. Um, but yeah, so anyway, paranormal stuff. I'm super, super stoked for this. And it'll be, it'll be interesting because to me... The scarier part of a lot of these things is the we don't know. It's the mystery. Yeah, it's the mystery. It's not necessarily the, like, it was ghosts. I'm like, well, it wasn't. But (laughs) what was it kind of thing. Right. Well, and that's also coming from your skeptic view, because there are people who do believe in ghosts. And they're not going to have the same thoughts that you are. They are going to believe that ghosts made whatever sound or made whatever thing happen. Ghosts, spirits, I mean all of the above. And so I think it's good. I don't really know. I I feel like I'm in the middle. I'm not a hard skeptic, nor am I a hard believer. Mm -hmm. I could very easily be swayed in either direction. So I'm interested to hear how you present your case. Yeah. Um, One time as a child, 
I think I was like seven, mm-hmm. six or seven. I thought a ghost was trying to communicate with me through my lamp um, because I was sitting on my bed and my lamp just started flickering. I don't know. And of course I'm seven. So my immediate thought is, oh, it's a ghost. Ghost. Yeah. And when I turned to talk to it, it would like answer back and flicker at me. And I was like, what the fuck? And (laughs) then what it turns out is that whenever I would like talk to it, I was sitting on my mattress and it would move the mattress a little bit. And the plug that was against the mattress for the lamp was just a little bit out of the socket. (laughs) So instead of a ghost, it was just a fire hazard. Yes, it was a fire hazard, but, you know, for that moment of time that you didn't realize the reality, kind of cool, you were talking to a ghost. It was kind of terrifying, but yeah. How did you understand what they were saying to you in order to respond? I didn't know they were saying anything to me. Like, I didn't know what they were saying, but I'd be like, (laughs) are you a ghost? And it would flicker at me, so I assumed that meant yes. (laughs) (laughs) Totally fair, totally fair. Um, well, before we jump into our cases, let's chat about our wine picks for today. Yes. So the wine that I picked for this week's episode, you know, with it being summertime and pool weather, I mean, obviously it's damn time I did a rosé. So it's true. (laughs) I picked the 2017 Tumble Turn Rosé from California. And as you can see, it's this beautiful blush like dark blush pink color and this wine actually took home a silver medal this year at the 2019 west coast wine competition and a bronze medal at the 2019 texas international wine competition and nice and so i mean already that excites me that it won two awards this year and rosé is one of those wines especially in the summertime that's like fantastic for parties and you know you think champagne celebration sometimes you also think like rosé celebration it just goes hand in hand with having a good time and it's a crowd pleaser because it can bring people who mostly drink red wine and people who mostly drink wine wine and they can kind of come together and it's it offers a bit of best of both worlds huh that's interesting because in my mind a rosé is just so much closer to a white than a red? It depends. It depends on what rosé you get. So this one in particular, it's going to have fruity flavors of like plum and strawberry and pomegranate, but then it's going to have a lightness and more acidity like a white wine. So those fruity flavors that you get, you know, that's more characteristic of your red wines. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to like it being very acidic, while there are very acidic uh, red wines, you think more, or at least I do, of like a white wine that has like that high acidity. Oh, yeah. So this wine is light bodied with a mild acidity, higher on the fruit scale, but low in tannins. So that is one characteristic mm-hmm. of rosé that tends more to a white wine is that it doesn't really have any tannins. Reds, as y'all know, we like those big, bold reds that have a lot of tannins. Yeah. So it's also a dry rosé, so it's not going to be very sweet. And all of these characteristics together create a really great drinking experience. And it's a wine that it's really good to drink by itself, but you can also pair it with a lot of different foods, a lot of different dinners or appetizers, um, specifically, you know, duck, turkey. So some of those gameier poultries. And this mm. 
wine specifically um, retails for about $19. So, Ooh, pricey. Yeah, so it's a little bit up there, um, but I, the bottle was so pretty. It's got like this black label with this pretty like old English scroll type font, but then it's on top of a label that has lots of flowers on it, but they're like black and gray. Um, anyway, it's beautiful. So I'm going to open this and get it poured while you tell me about your wine. Well, before I jump into my wine, I want to talk about what is actually secretly the topic of this episode. That is (laughs) Tyler struggling to pronounce everything. (laughs) Oh my Um, God. You'll see it in my wine and then you'll see it in my case. (laughs) Um, So I want to forewarn y'all that we're all on this rough ass roller coaster together. Yep. So we'll, my wine. We'll join one another hand in hand down the rough pronunciation <laughs> roller coaster. Because we all know I am always on that struggle bus and I pronounce things wrong all the time. So. Yeah, usually I'm pretty good. It's not going to happen this episode. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for example, the wine I chose for this episode is the 2018 Vinoble La Chateau Muscadet Severe et Mont. You did pretty well. I don't know if I have any idea what you said, but it sounded French. Yeah, well, that, that was what I was going for. <laughs> it's a white wine. <laughs> so, ooh. Muscadet, which is the varietal, is a bone-dry, light-bodied white wine from the Lyon Valley in France, which is on the western coast of France, so the Atlantic coast. Yeah. And it's made with Melon de Bourgogne grapes. I'm sorry, the country of France. (laughs) And Quebec. And a lot of countries in Africa. Mabi. Your language does not flow from my tongue easily. But Muscadet is a very loved wine. It pairs very excellently with food due to its minerally citrus-like flavor and its very high acidity. Wines like this one are a perfect palate cleanser due to, again, the naturally high acidity. Yeah. And they work really well in, you know, zesty vinaigrettes or other high acidity dressings. But its true, like, calling is seafood. It is, like, the perfect wine to pair with seafood. Really? Especially, like, shellfish. Ooh. And, for example, in Nantes, one of their favorite regional dishes is moules frites, which is made by flash-cooking mussels in a splash of Muscadet wine and tossing them with shallots and green herbs and french fries. That sounds really good. I would totally I mean, eat I, that. I hate shellfish, so I wouldn't. Of course you but, do. And the dominant flavors in this wine are lime, lemon, green apple, green pear, and seashell. Interesting. Which, the rest of them, I'm like, okay, like fruity, citrusy, seashell. I don't know what the fuck a seashell tastes like, but I'm about to find out, I guess. I think you will, and I'm really interested for you to tell me what that tastes like. And I got mine from Trader Joe's for like $6. Nice. Ooh, and it's a screw top. Yeah, it is. Ooh, it smells so good. Also, one thing to note, while Muscadet does sound 
eerily close to Moscato. It is not a sweet wine at all. It's bone dry. Really? Oh, okay. Because mm-hmm. I was under the impression it was going to be sweet. Um, bone dry, which is a weird phrase. Bones are wet. They're covered in meat. So not when they're, you know, like we've talked about, decomposed and outside in a the field. There's no more meat on them. I mean, yeah, but if the field's wet, then so are they. So I'm looking at my rosé and it's this nice, beautiful, translucent, light blush color. Mm-hmm. And when I smell it, the first thing that hits my nose is absolutely strawberry. Like, that was just like, whoa. Oh, mine is a fresh cut green apple. Like, that is the boom. It honestly, mine smells similar to a Sauvignon Blanc. Mine definitely smells like a rosé. However, I know to expect this one to be dry, but when I smell it, it's... Again, it's, it was one of those scents that it was, yes, strawberry. Like, no questions about it. So, mm-hmm. I'm really interested okay, well, to see how it tastes. Let's cheers, because I want to drink this one. Yes. All right. All right. Cheers. Cheers. This one is definitely fruitier than a French rosé, for example. French rosés are a lot more floral. And... Mm-hmm. While this one is dry, I have definitely had drier. Like, so again, it's it's a California rosé, so I know to expect something a little bit different than a French rosé. So it's not as crisp as some of the ones that we've talked about before. It's very good. It's not sweet. I would say it's semi-dry. I don't think that's what it's called. I think it's called semi-sweet. But it's not sweet. It just has that fruity flavor. And the taste is... I'm trying to decide if I, I I know there's other fruit in there other than the strawberry, but the strawberry really is the dominant uh, flavor mm-hmm. for sure. This is a really good one. Perfect for by the pool. Uh, to me, all rosés are perfect by the pool. I love all rosés. And I love how different rosés can be because basically any red grape can be made into a rosé. Um, I will say I searched high and low and I could not find what grapes uh, Tumbleturn used in this wine so it remains a mystery but this one's really good what is yours like because i've again never heard of this wine before so it is it's very surprising because i with the smell you know reading the description i was imagining it was probably gonna be very similar to a sauvignon blanc and not really this is maybe the driest white wine i've ever had to the point where it like makes me salivate really how dry it is which is usually something that only like really heavy tannic reds do but the flavor immediately is that of fresh lime and the pith of the lime so it, it has that like acidic sour almost bitter note is the pith like the pith is that the white part is the white okay okay it's the white under the rind. I really like this one. It's not a super long-lasting flavor, but very heavy on the citrus, very high acidity. My stomach will not be thanking me after I finish this bottle, because I will have acid reflux. (laughs) (laughs) Especially because after our episode, I'm going to go eat some gnocchi with tomato sauce, because I hate myself. Um, that actually no. sounds fantastic. You know what I had it, for dinner? Two hard-boiled eggs. 
That's sad. <laughs> I wasn't very hungry. I ate a Pop-Tart at like 5.30, which I guess that was my fault. But anyway, love this wine. We'll be getting it again. I will need to go and see if my Trader Joe's has that wine. I would love to try it, especially knowing that it's not sweet. It's yeah, one of those that only... I'm sure I have walked by that wine and not picked it up because I thought it was Moscato. Yeah. Well, it was just in the France section. And uh, good luck asking one of the employees about it. Being like, hi, do you have the Vinoble Le Chateau Muscadet Sirelement? Uh, yeah, it's right over there. Hey, they might know. They're pretty good. Or they'll be like, the fuck? That is not how you pronounce it. <laughs> or they'll be like, oh, oui, je m'appelle Français. Nope, that's my name is. <laughs> my I don't name know how to is, say. My name is France. <laughs> um, they might, you might sound so good that they're actually French and just start speaking at you in French. You never know. You never know. But we have our topic, thanks to Aubrey. We have our wine, thanks to us. Let's jump into these cases. Tell me about your paranormal murder. Yes. So, the case that I picked is The Exorcism of Annalise Mikkel. The sources I used for this were Wikipedia, All That's Interesting, and Historic Mysteries. Ooh, historic mysteries. I like it. I know, me too. It was a very interesting website. So, though there may be a lot of you guys who don't know this, but there was a movie that was created in 2005, and it was called The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And okay. that movie was actually not entirely fictional, but it was based on the actual experience of this German girl named Annalise Mikkel. So... When you said the exorcism of Annalise Nickel, I was, my first thought was, the exorcism of Emily Rose yeah. in theaters, Halloween or whatever. Um, yeah. So, okay. It's such a very interesting area, paranormal and true things. I know. Like, you're just like, no, this did happen, but what? But what? How? What's the explanation? Like, that's I'm like, where- did... Did she have some breakfast tacos that were bad and they thought it was a demon? Because I've definitely <laughs> felt like I was being exercised by the food poisoning inside me. But Um, I mean anyone who has seen The Exorcist and the Green Vomit, like, yeah, you know, I mean that's I've involved. Never actually seen The Exorcist. It's really interesting. It is scary, but it's it's a different scary, like a 70s scary. It's not jump scare. It's more just like really creepy and eerie and scary that way, which I think is more impactful. Oh, 100%. So Annalise was born Anna Elizabeth Mikkel on September 21st, 1962 in oh. Liebelfling, Bavaria in West Germany. Her family was Roman Catholic, and she was brought up along three sisters by both of her parents, Joseph and Anna. She was religious, again, because she's born into a Roman Catholic family, and they went to Mass twice a week. And when she was 16 years old, she suddenly blacked out at school, and she began walking around in this daze. And although Annalise did not remember this event, her friends and family said that she was in this trance-like state. So, a year later, Annalise experienced a similar occurrence where she woke up in a trance and she ended up wetting her bed. Her body also went through a series of convulsions, causing her body to shake uncontrollably. 
And after the second time that this happened, Annalise visited a neurologist who diagnosed her with temporal lobe epilepsy, which, yes, everything I just described, it's epilepsy. This is a disorder that, if you're not familiar with it, it causes seizures, loss of memory, and experiencing visual and auditory hallucinations if it's extreme enough. Your temporal lobe, I mean, that's where a lot of your information gathering senses live. Right. So I know that people who have damaged, I mean, often see a lot of hallucinations, things like that, because they're experiencing things that their brain is making up. Exactly. Which is fucking horrifying, not knowing what's actually happening and what's not. Well, and because when you're hallucinating, it's real to you. Like, you don't know that it's not. It's like, literally, there could be a chair next to you and a person, and you don't know which one's real and which one's a hallucination, because to you, they're both real. They're both right there. There is nothing distinguishable that is differentiating the two. Yeah. So in 1973... Annalise graduated and joined the University of Würzburg, and her classmates there later described her as very withdrawn and religious. So a few years before she graduated, in June 1970, she suffered a third seizure at a psychiatric hospital where she was staying, and at this time she was prescribed an anticonvulsant drug for the very first time. Mm -hmm. It included Dilantin, which unfortunately, did not alleviate her problem. As the year progressed, she began to deteriorate. Though she was still taking her medication, as she was deteriorating, she started to believe that she was possessed by a demon and that she needed to find a solution outside of medicine. She started to see the face of the devil wherever she went, and she said that she heard demons whispering in her ears. When she heard the demons telling her, Hello, mama, let me whisper in your ear. I don't think they were that nice. They were telling her she was damned and that she would rot in hell. Oh, that's nice of them. They would do this while she was praying, and through this, she concluded that the devil must be possessing her. That same month, she was prescribed another drug, Olept, which was similar to chlorpromazine and is used in the treatment of various psychoses, including schizophrenia, disturbed behavior, and delusions. But by 1973, and so this is when she graduated, she suffered from depression and she began hallucinating while praying. And, you know, like I said earlier, this is when she was continuously being told by these demons that she was damned, that she's going to rot in hell. And her treatment in a psychiatric hospital did not improve her health and her depression just kept getting worse. Long-term treatment didn't help, and she started to grow increasingly frustrated with medical intervention. And she was taking all these pharmacological drugs for five years. And they're not doing anything. And they're not doing anything. So Mm. Annalise became intolerant uh, during this time of Christian sacred places and objects, such as the crucifix. And she went to San Damiano with a family friend who regularly organized Christian pilgrimages. Her escort there concluded that she was suffering from demonic possession because she was unable to walk past a crucifix and she refused to drink the water of the Christian Holy Spring. Huh. And so Father Alt said the following, and I want to read this straight from his lips. Annalise told me, and Frau Hein confirmed this, that she was unable to enter the shrine. She approached it with the greatest hesitation, then said the soil burned like fire, and she simply could not stand it. 
She then walked around the shrine in a wide arc and tried to approach it from the back. She looked at the people who were kneeling in the area surrounding the little garden, and it seemed to her that while praying, they were gnashing their teeth. She got as far as the edge of the little garden, and then she had to turn back. Coming from the front again, she had to avert her glance from the picture of Christ, which was in the chapel of the house. She made it Mm -hmm. several times to the garden, but could not get past it. She also noted that she could no longer look at medals or pictures of saints. They sparkled so immensely that she could not stand it. So that is, I I don't know, like the brain is a fucking ridiculous thing. It really is. my stance on this. It is. Like it just, because I imagine she has, you know, maybe she has like a tiny brain tumor or something that they've not been able to see. And all of this is very much real to her or she's possessed i mean it It depends on how you look i'm wrong well both she and her family as well as her community they became convinced and consulted several priests talking for an exorcism when she could not approach these objects and all of these reactions she was having to all these relics they were like she's possessed we need an exorcism but priests declined They recommended the continuation of medical treatment and informed the family that exorcisms required the bishop's permission. Hmm. So, in the Catholic Church, official approval for an exorcism is given when the person strictly meets a set of criteria. And only then they are considered to be suffering from possession, which is also Mm -hmm. known as infestitio and under demonic control. Infestio sounds like a Harry Potter spell. (laughs) kind of does which tells me it's probably latin (laughs) i'm sure it is yes so this intense dislike for religious objects and supernatural powers they're some of the first indications of possession at this point annalise's delusions had become so extreme she was ripping the clothes off of her body showing aggression she was compulsively performing up to 400 squats a day she would crawl under the table. Damn, leg day. There was also a period of time where she crawled under a table and barked like a dog for two straight days. Oh my god. She would also eat spiders and coal. She bit the head off of a dead bird. And the fuck? she licked her own urine off the floor. All of those are really gross. Yeah. And so in... November 1973, Annalise started her treatment with Tegretol, which was an anti-seizure drug and a mood stabilizer. So again, okay. they're just trying more remedies to try to to help her medically. So, oh, I have to jump back to it. Why is she in a place that has so many spiders that she there's like enough that it becomes a thing that she's eating them? I mean, good question. I don't know. Because if there's that many spiders, you should burn the house down and go, first off. Like, that... That's not a place to live with that many spiders. Like, if it becomes a pattern, I mean, there has to to be at least, like, four occasions that someone saw her eat a spider. I think she was eating other bugs as well. I don't think it was specifically spiders. I don't think they need an exorcist, then. I think they need an exterminator. (laughs) Well, I mean, technically, an exorcist is, you know, an extermination of the demons in the body. Boo. Boo. That was good. Okay. So, finally, Annalise and her mom found a priest, Ernst Alt, 
who believed in her possession. So when Ernst saw her, he declared that she did not look like an epileptic and that he did not see her having any of these seizures. He believed that she was suffering from demonic possession and urged the local bishop to allow an exorcism. So Annalise wrote Ernst Alt a letter in 1975, and she said, I am nothing. Everything about me is vanity. What should I do? I have to improve. You pray for me. And also, she told him at another point in time, I want to suffer for other people, but this is so cruel. So she's saying some pretty weird things to him. And in September of that same year, 1975, Alt reached out to Bishop Joseph Stengel, who actually granted a local priest, Arnold Rins, permission to exercise according to the Ritual Romanium of 1614. But he ordered total secrecy of this act. Oh. So, well, first off, it's good that he got permission to exercise. I mean, <laughs> the treadmill, the elliptical, all of that is really good. Second off, I was picturing this being like 1870s, but 1975 is fucking crazy. It brings a new level of curiosity to this case, <laughs> understanding that it is more so present day. So this ritual Romanium from 1614 it's one of the official ritual works of the roman rite of the catholic church and it contains all of the services which may be performed by a priest or a deacon which are not contained in the other two books the missal romanium or the breverium romanium so exorcisms have existed in various cultures and religions for millennia But the practice became popular in the Catholic Church in the 1500s when priests who would use the Latin phrase Vadre Retro Santana, which meant go back Satan to expel demons from their mortal hosts. By the 1960s, exorcisms were very rare among Catholics, but because of movies and books like The Exorcist in the early 70s, there was this renewed interest. I mean, fair. I imagine if you're looking for an exorcism, you like call up the church and they're like no what we don't do that anymore what so Renz performed his first exorcism on annalise on september 24th at this point her parents had stopped consulting doctors on her request and were relying solely on the exorcism rites 67 exorcism sessions one or two a week lasting up to about four hours each oh my god God. were performed over about 10 months from 1975 to 1976. So during her exorcisms, Annalise revealed that she believed she was possessed by five demons, Lucifer, Cain, Judas Iscariot, Adolf Hitler, and Nero. So during the exorcisms, all of these spirits would jostle for power in Annalise's body, and they would communicate from her mouth in a low growl. And If you're interested, you can easily find the videos on YouTube. I will admit, I was too scared to listen to them. I just couldn't do it. It freaked me out. Oh, they videoed her Well, they recorded it. Exorcism? They recorded it. So the audio has been enhanced. You can find it on YouTube. Like, there are a lot of videos. So in these videos, or in this audio, it's the priest having conversations with these demons. And, I mean, once I read that it 
her voice and these demons were communicating in this low growl, I was just too scared to listen. So they're out there if so you're interested. Like, but So he's like, hey, demons, what's up? And they're like, oh, we're good. How are you doing? How's Martha? How's the kids? You know? I guess he's a priest, so he doesn't have a wife and kids, but... <laughs> you know, I don't think they were that polite, because what they were saying was that they're, they're arguing with each other. Hitler would say, people are stupid as pigs, they think it's all over after death, it goes on. And Judas would say, Hitler was nothing but a big mouth who had no real say in hell. So it's like oh. they're fighting over who's more important in hell. Oh, so things like, you're a fat virgin who can't drive... You know. Oh my god. So, Annalise, I'm just gonna, I can't even. Yep, okay, that's fine. <laughs> so, Annalise began talking increasingly about dying to atone for the wayward youth of the day and the apostle priests of the modern church, and she started to refuse food. Oh no, we're good. Nero made us some tortellini earlier, so we're full. <laughs> Your demon voice is too close to the, the what I had imagined. But minus the jokes, so... I'm gonna, like, throw out my throat doing that. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> You're gonna be halfway through your case and, like, lose your voice. Annalise would break the bones and rip the tendons in her knees from continually kneeling in prayer. So the up-down, oh, up-down, she had broken knees. And Oh my god. Because of everything that she was going through... On July 1st, 1976, Annalise died in her home. The autopsy that was later performed stated that the cause was malnutrition and dehydration due to being in a semi-starvation state for almost a year while the rites of exorcism were being performed. When she passed away, she weighed 30 kilograms, which is 68 (gasps) pounds. Oh my god. She had the broken knees. She, at this time, before her death, was unable to move without assistance and was reported to have contracted pneumonia as well. When she died, she was 23 years old. Almost 24. Oh my god. 68 pounds. I... That is like... My first thought... My leg. Yeah. My first thought was, why didn't they put a feeding tube in her? You know, or an IV and stuff, but... She's not at a hospital. She refused she, medical treatment. She refused treatment. medical stuff, so... Mm-hmm. Fuck. Oh my god. So, after her death, there was an investigation that started. And... Uh, yeah. The state prosecutor maintained that Annalise's death could have been prevented even just one week before she died. Yeah. In 1976, the state charged Annalise's parents and priests Ernest Alt and Arnold Reigns with negligent homicide. I mean, I agree. I do too. I absolutely agree. And the state recommended that no involved parties be jailed. Instead, they recommended the sentence for the priest was a fine, while the prosecution concluded that the parents should be exempt from punishment as they had already, quote-unquote, suffered enough, which was the criterion in the German penal law. So on March 30th, 1978, the trial started. It was in the district court and drew intense interest, as anyone could imagine. The parents were being defended by Eric Schmidt-Leichner, and their lawyers were supported by the church. Before the court, 
Doctors testified that Annalise Miquel was not possessed, stating that this was a psychological effect because of her strict religious upbringing and her epilepsy. But the doctor, Richard Roth, who was asked for medical help by Alt, allegedly told her during the exorcism that there is no injection against the devil, Annalise. So basically this doctor is like, oh, this was 100% medical. But he had told her, like, well, I can't, you can't medicine away the devil. Right. So the defense lawyer, Schmidt Leichner, said that the exorcism was legal and that the German constitution protected citizens in the unrestricted exercise of their religious beliefs. The defense, the evidence that they brought forth was the recordings of the exorcism sessions and This, like we talked about earlier, they featured the demons arguing, and they used this to assert their claim that Annalise was possessed. Um, Both of the priests said that the demons identified themselves, like we talked about earlier, Lucifer, Cain, Judas Iscariot, Hitler, and Nero. And they further said that she was finally freed from her exorcism just before her death. Um, no. Which sounds like way too convenient. Yeah, no. The bishop said that he was not aware of her alarming health condition when he approved the exorcism. And because of this, he did not testify. Well, the exorcism also lasted 10 months. You couldn't, like, drive down there and be like, Hey, Annalise, you good? Oh my god, you weigh 68 pounds. Maybe this should not continue. Like, was there no one or her parents or this priest doing it? Yeah, she's saying she doesn't want medical help. Cool. She's not in a state to be making her own decisions if she's 68 pounds and dying in front of you. Were none of them like, ooh, how about we continue this exorcism in a hospital room with an IV in her? Then we can continue. I mean, that's the thing. They believed she was possessed by the devil, and so they thought they were getting her the best care that they could. I know, I... I I feel like they're not mutually exclusive, though, is the thing. Like... She can be possessed by the devil, yeah, Mm -hmm. but one of the symptoms of that is that she's not eating. You could do medical shit about that. Oh my god. But no, I, to me, I absolutely, if I was on this jury, I'd be like, no, negligent homicide, bitch. Yeah. Well, the accused were found guilty of manslaughter resulting from negligence and were sentenced to six months in jail, which was later suspended, and three years probation. And this was a lighter sentence than anticipated, but it was more than the prosecution requested. So, however you want to look at that. So the church approving such an old-fashioned exorcism drew public and media attention. And according to John M. Duffy, this case was a misidentification of mental illness. Which at this point, we can abundantly that that's been made abundantly clear with all of her symptoms and it's like she she didn't receive the opportunity to find the right mixture of medication to help her for what she needed yeah no it sounds like she is having epilepsy and schizophrenia yeah and especially if she has a tumor or damage or something on her temporal lobe absolutely those could be both just symptoms of something larger. I mean, 
it's the 70s. Medicine's improved a lot. I would think that nowadays this happening, you know, and her going to the doctor. Because she, she did everything right. Yeah. She went to doctors. She took medicine and it didn't do anything. I, I wonder, and I hope, and I do think that it, now if this happened, it would be very different. I do too. But I will say the surprising thing is, even with all of the evidence to the contrary... The people that were the closest to Annalise, they were completely convinced that she was possessed. And they still believe that to this day. So after this trial happened, her parents asked authorities for permission to exhume the remains of their daughter. Their official reason for wanting to do this was because Annalise had been buried in a really quick manner in a very cheap coffin. After two years since her burial... On February 25th, 1978, her remains were replaced in a new oak coffin lined with tin. The official reports state that the body bore signs of consistent deterioration, and the accused exorcists were discouraged from seeing the remains of Annalise, and Arnold Reens later stated that he had been prevented from even entering the mortuary. Yeah. You were found criminally responsible for her death, so... Yeah. Yeah, go away. The church did eventually change its position and stated that she was mentally ill, not possessed, and her grave became a pilgrimage site. Ulrich Niemann, who is a Jesuit priest, doctor, and psychiatrist, whom priests call in exorcism cases, told the Washington Post in 2005 this following statement. As a doctor, I say there is no such thing as possession. In my view, these patients are mentally ill. I pray with them, but that alone doesn't help. You have to deal with them as a psychiatrist. But at the same time, when the patient comes from Eastern Europe and believes that he's been impaired by evil, it would be a mistake to ignore his belief system. And so Neiman further said that he does not think he is an exorcist and he doesn't perform the Roman ritual of 1614. Which, I mean, that's... It's like I said at the beginning, our brains are so powerful. You cannot ignore how someone feels and what they believe because that mm-hmm. absolutely affects your well-being. And if you have someone who is mentally ill and they're saying they're possessed or, you know, they're they have a very religious mindset about that. They're going to fare a lot worse if you're just like, no, you're wrong. Here's pills. Then yeah. if you're like, yes, let's work with you. Let's pray. Let's go to church. Also, let's take this medication stuff. Be- I mean, they're going to fare a lot better. And it's 100%. not, you know, it's not you placating them or anything. No. It's the, the, Brain is a fucking powerful thing. It really is. So academic Heike Schwartz says that Annalise's case showed demonic possession as a variation of multiple personality disorder, which is today known as disassociative identity disorder. DID, yeah. DID, yeah. And because of this case, the number of officially sanctioned exorcisms decreased in Germany. In spite of Pope Benedict's 16th support for the wider use of it, compared to Pope John Paul II, who in 1999 made the rules stricter and involving only very rare cases where exorcisms could be performed. On June 6, 2013, a fire broke out in the house where Annalise Mikael lived, and 
Although the local police said it was a case of arson, some locals attributed it to the exorcism case. And like I mentioned earlier, there have been multiple movies created that are based on this case, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which that movie actually focuses more on the court case and not The Exorcism, which I did not know. Oh, I I mean, I've never seen it either. I haven't either. So. There's also Requiem, and then the third one is Annalise, The Exorcist Tapes, and they're all based loosely on The Exorcism mm. of Annalise Mikkel. Well, fuck. Isn't that crazy? I just... Exorcisms are so bizarre because there are yeah. so many different belief systems and facets surrounding them mm-hmm. that actually researching this one and, and doing this case was a lot more challenging than I thought it would be. Well, and also, I mean, neither of us grew up Catholic, so they're foreign to us. Like the, right. the whole concept of it. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with this. Um, yeah, that's uh, your case is fucked up. Definitely. <laughs> I'm ready for you to get into your case now because I'm really interested to learn your opinions. We've never talked about this between the two of us, so. We haven't, and same. <laughs> same. Because it, it's one that I think I've developed my opinions on. It. Have you? I could be swayed to some others, though, kind of thing. Interesting. So, not so much the skeptic in, when it comes to this one. You'll see at the end. Yes, still a skeptic. (laughs) But so my case is the Dyatlov Pass incident. Yes. Which, y'all. Literally one of the craziest stories ever. Ever. One of the craziest stories. One of the things that is so fascinating to me. Like one of my, I feel like saying favorite is weird in this case, but one of the most intriguing things I've ever heard of. So the sources I used were dietlovepass.com, all that's interesting, Atlas Obscura, and Wikipedia. Can I just say, I love the way Dietlov sounds. Uh, You say it Mm -hmm. better than I do, but just that word is very pretty to me. Does that make sense? I just like it how it sounds. Oh no, I love it. It's, I love the word. I hate this case. Fair. So... I'm going to jump in. In January of 1959, a group of experienced ski hikers from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, so college kids, embarked on a journey to reach the peak of Oturin Mountain, or Mount Oturin, um, which is in the Ural Mountains, which if y'all don't know, they're uh, a mountain range in Russia, or what's today Russia, that separates European Russia from Asian Russia. So this group of 10 consisted of 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov, 21-year-old Yuri Doroshenko, 20-year-old Ludmila Dubanina, 23-year-old Yuri Krivonyshenko, 24-year-old Alexander Kulevatov, 22-year-old Zineda Komogorova, 23-year-old Rustem Slobodin, 23-year-old Nikolai Tibidov Brignoles, 38-year-old Semyon Zolotaryov, and 21-year-old Yuri Yudin. And I apologize to the entire country of Russia for my pronunciations. I told y'all the topic of this episode is Tyler battles with pronouncing things. So those are the 10 
basically it's a group of 10 college students. Most of them are in their young 20s. Simeon is in his late 30s. And it's just this group of friends going and fucking hiking. So on January 27th, the group begin their trek from the town of Visai to the Otoren Mountain. The next day... Yuri Yudin had to turn back and head to town after he had some health issues. He had just some issues that made it like hard for him to hike, so he had to turn back. Yeah. And he was the only person out of this group to live. So eerie. So, yeah. So this group of what is now nine people continued on their journey. And on February 1st, they began to make their way through this then unnamed pass leading to the mountain that they wanted to climb. As they're pushing through the area towards the base of the mountain, they're hit with snowstorms that just ripped through the narrow pass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their visibility is decreasing, so they lost sense of direction. And instead of moving towards the mountain, they accidentally deviated to the west and found themselves on the slope of another nearby mountain. The mountain they found themselves on is called Kolat Siakol, which means dead mountain in the language of the indigenous Mansi people of the region, oh. which is fucking eerie. That is very eerie. That's almost like so a premonition type. Yeah. So in order to avoid losing the altitude that they had gained, or possibly because they wanted to practice camping on a mountain side yeah. and they were already on this mountain... Dyatlov called for the camp to just be made there on the mountainside at about 3,600 feet in elevation. So, one thing to note, all of them were very experienced mountaineers. You know, this is not a group of college kids who were like, oh, let's go climb a mountain. It's, they've been doing this all their lives. Yes, they- They're very experienced. They know exactly what they're doing. Like, there's no question. Well, and even on this trip- um, they've skied across frozen lakes, and they've just gone through totally uninhabited areas just to get where they are. And despite the bad weather and the slower progress than they'd planned, their diary entries that they had showed that they were in high spirits. Yeah. They're having a great time. Yeah, this is what they love to do. There's a reason they've been doing it their whole lives. So before embarking on the journey, Dyatlov had told his sports club that he and his team would send them a telegram as soon as they returned from the hike. So their plan was, you know, they started in Vitsai. They were going to hike up to the mountain, get to the top, and then make their way back to Vitsai, which is the village in the area. So it was basically just like a leave the village, go up, come back down, come back to the village. Yeah. Okay. And it was like a 160-mile trip, so it was a lot. But, you know, that, that was their plan. And so... Dyatlov told his sports club that he'd send them a telegram as soon as they got back from the hike. But that telegram never came. Yeah. And by the time the February 20th had rolled around, three weeks after Yuri left the party to go back to town, yeah. there was no communication from them. So a search party was mounted. Yeah, because that is long enough to where it is clear something is the matter. Yeah, I mean, a couple days, yeah, they got held up. It's been, you know, there's been some storms, whatever. Three weeks, 
something's well, up. Well, three weeks, and especially the fact that there were storms. So it's like, oh, yeah. they're really late. We had that large bout of storms. We need to go check on them. Yeah. So the volunteer rescue force that trekked through this pass found the campsite, but they didn't find any of the hikers. They found the tent, and that's it. So army and police investigators were sent in to determine what happened to these missing students. When the investigators arrived at the mountain, they weren't hopeful. I mean, you know, the students, yes, they're experienced hikers, but the route they'd chosen was a very difficult one. Yeah. And accidents on mountain trails are not unheard of. I mean, that's it happens. very common. Absolutely. And also with how long it's been, they were they were expecting to find bodies and sad but uncomplicated answers. You know, oh, they died of exposure. Yeah. Or, oh, you know, this ice shelf broke and they fell. There's nothing crazy about it. Right. Just a nature explanation. Instead, what they found would turn out to be one of the most mysterious events ever encountered. So on February 26th, that was when the searchers found the group's abandoned and very badly damaged tent on the side of the mountain. Yeah. And the campsite baffled the search party. The tent was half torn down and covered in snow. It was empty, and all of their belongings and shoes had been left behind. And investigators said that the tent had been cut open from the inside. So weird. So... They were getting out of there fast. They didn't give themselves time to put on shoes or to even open the actual tent. They cut it out. They had to get away from something. Eight or nine sets of footprints were left by people who were wearing only socks or a single shoe or were barefoot. And they were followed leading towards the edge of a nearby woods. And where their camp is, they're on the side of a mountain in kind of a clearing. And down the hill is forest. So they're in the open. Yeah, These footprints, they're able to be followed towards the edge of the woods on the opposite side of the pass. About a mile or so, or a kilometer and a half to the northeast. But after about 1,600 feet, the tracks wound up being covered in snow. At the edge of the forest, under a large Siberian pine tree, the searchers found the remains of a small fire. And there was also where they found the first two bodies. Those of Yuri Krivonyshensko and Yuri Doroshenko. Oh, both the Yuris. Yeah. Three people in this party of ten were Yuri. I think it was a very common name. These two and then one. I mean, yeah. I think it'd be like being named... Brian. Yeah, there are a lot of Brians. Yeah. Okay. Brian or Ashley. So the two of their bodies were found, both of them shoeless and dressed only in their underwear, despite the temperature being around negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. That is crazy because think about that. You know, they cut themselves out of the tent, not wearing clothes or shoes for the most part, Mm -hmm. knowing that they were basically facing certain death even with the temperatures alone like we don't know why they got out of the tent so quickly Mm -hmm. but the temperature alone is a death sentence and some of them and i'll go into it more but some of them did have more clothes on but at least from my understanding of it 
it looks like it was people who were woken up from something. You know, some people are sleeping in jackets. Some people are just sleeping in, like, long underwear and sweaters because, again, it's still fucking cold outside. Right. You're not going to sleep naked in, when it's negative 20. No, no, no. Also, you're in a tent with 300 people, basically. Right. And when you say underwear, um, you mean they're in long underwear. We're not talking tighty-whities. Correct. Okay. No, it, that absolutely makes sense that either they were woken up from something or something happened and two of them died and a couple of them took those clothes. Yeah. So both of the Yuris, their hands were burned. And Doroshenko's skin was a deep brown purple. Oh, that's a weird color. The branches of the tree they were under were broken up to five meters high. Oh my god, like they fell? you know, 16, 17 feet. So this suggested that one of them had maybe climbed up there to look for something. You know, maybe get a high vantage point to look for the camp. Or... They were cutting wood or something, but these branches are broken much higher than anyone can reach. Between this tree and the camp, the searchers found three more bodies. Those of Igor Dyatlov, Zineda Kolmogorova, and Rustem Slobodin. And the way they were posed suggested that they were attempting to return to the tent when they died. Dyatlov's skin was a bluish red, and his jacket was open, which is really weird because it's looking like they froze to death. Yeah. Why is his jacket open? Right. And one detail I had to add that just really fucking creeps me out is the watch he was wearing on his wrist was stopped at 531. Clocks and watches that stop during disasters... That shit freaks me out. It's really eerie. It's so, yes, it's so eerie. And you're like, it's something that is, I mean, for lack of better words, frozen in time of when this happened. Yeah. And it happens all the time. And like, I don't know about you, but I don't have- I know, our clock's shitty. I don't have watches (laughs) that randomly break. Like, you would think that, I don't know, the clock on your wall would stop working when there's a really bad storm or something. Like- yeah. I mean, not exactly, I mean, you see all but you of get these, what I'm saying. Like, like, you'd think this would happen yeah. more often in everyday life because of very abrupt, quick movements. And, like, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. So I'm like, how do watches get no, stopped? No, I've had, I've had analog clocks, like, fall off the wall, and they're still doing their thing. They're like, I'm tick, tick, bitch. But, you know, you, then you go to, like, the the one I keep thinking of is one that's in the museum for the Oklahoma City bombing that stopped at 9.02 when the bomb went off. And it's, like, the cover's not broken. Like, I mean, yes, the clock was hit by the blast, but it's it's just so eerie. Do bombs give off radiation? Nuclear ones do, but general, like a normal bomb wouldn't. They don't? Oh, because I was going to say, maybe it's some type of reaction to, like, the radiation or something. No. Maybe it's just, like, the intense pressure. I Yeah, I imagine, like, in... The case of bombs, the pressure wave from the explosion probably fucking up some of the gears and shit that's inside the clock. You know, some of the more delicate things. But it's just, it's eerie as shit. So yeah, his skin is bluish red. His jacket's open. His watch stops. Kolmogorova's skin was purple red. And she had a long, bright red bruise on the right side of her torso that... 
almost looked like the kind of bruise that would have been left from a baton. Oh. Like from being hit with a baton or a bat or something. Yeah. Oh, God. And Slobodin had some fractures to his skull that were strange. And on all of them, the Livor Mortis spots, which are spots on the skin where you can see discoloration from the blood pooling in the soft tissues right after death. So, like, if someone dies on their back and their heart stops beating, their blood's going to pull towards their back. You know, gravity's going to pull it down. And you can see that on the skin. Right. And it definitely does take some time for that to happen. Like, it's not yeah. it's not an instant. But, I mean, it's clear these bodies were laying there for a while. But because of how long they were laying there, this happened. I think it's like seven hours, yeah. seven to 12, I, something like that. Something like yeah. that. But these spots were on the top surfaces of their body. So their, their chest, the top of their legs. And all of them were on their back. So they've been turned over. Yeah, it looks like they had been moved or turned over hours after their death. Which I will say, just playing the skeptic for a moment, maybe an animal went over and was like, blah, 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 ew, I don't want it, never mind, and walked away. Well, maybe, but. Why an animal would leave food, I don't know. A couple of things. First off, there was no signs of scavenging on them. Also, there weren't animal footprints in the area. Oh. The only footprints they saw were the eight or nine footprints leaving the, or the eight or nine sets of footprints leaving the tent. Oh. So, you know, there weren't, I don't know, bear or. I mean, I was thinking. I don't like, know what other animals live in the Urals, yeah. but like a fox or a wolf or. No. So they were turned over somehow. Granted, could an animal have gone by and then their footprints got covered in snow? And these other ones didn't? Maybe. Yeah. Snow's weird like that. Mm -hmm. After these first five bodies were found, a legal inquest began. And it eventually determined that their cause of death was hypothermia. And, oh. I mean, yeah. And these deaths seem pretty straightforward at first. like Even with, like, Slobodin's head injuries? Yeah. Because they were explained as, you know, as he's dying, convulsing or thrashing around... And hitting his head on the ground or other things like that. So, like, it's, oh. all, it's all stuff that can be explained, you know, them being in various stages of undress, including um, Yuri being in his underwear. But that sounds weird. You know, you're freezing to death and yet you're, like, half naked. But in about 25% of hypothermia victims, this is an occurrence called paradoxical undressing. Where oh, as you you're really dying, yeah, as you're dying, your hypothalamus, which is the part in your brain that uh, regulates your body temperature, can malfunction. And so that's why you feel like you're getting hot, even though your body temperature is dropping. Basically, all of this so far can be explained not great, but reasonably by hypothermia. But then it got real weird. A couple things I want to mention before I continue is, remember, their tent had been cut open from the inside, and it still had all of their things in it. All of their coats and shoes and things that would have kept them warm. And it looked like they left the tent completely on their own volition and in a hurry. Yeah. And Slobodin, Dyatlov, and Komogorova looked like they died trying to return to the tent 
and Slobodin again had this crack in his skull. There's just a lot that's like, okay, hypothermia maybe, but we still have a lot of questions. Like, it was ruled that the elements are what killed them. You know, Slobodin did not die from the fracture in his skull, but there also weren't any external wounds on them. So how did he get this fractured skull without breaking his skin? Oh. What the fuck happened? And it seems strange, but again, hypothermia seems like the most likely answer. You know, there's still questions, but yeah, they died of hypothermia. Can you hit your head and break your skull without breaking the skin? I would imagine so. Like, I guess if you just fell in the right way, where you hit hard, but although I don't know. But maybe on like a flat surface, so... The skin, since it's kind of elastic, you know, compresses and does its thing, whereas your skull, which is not elastic, cracks, maybe. I don't know, though, because when you think of it, you bang your head accidentally on a corner. Split your skin. Yeah. I guess if you think about it, if you accidentally ran into a wall, obviously this is not going to give you, like, a cracked skull. But, like, you don't bleed. To to be fair, the the fractures on his skull were, um, like, on his temples. Like, on the thinner parts of his skull, sides of his head. Okay. So, you know, maybe, yeah, he's thrashing around, hits the ground, doesn't cut his skin, but, you know, the pressure of the impact is enough to break the bone. So these all can be explained with hypothermia. And then two months later, the rest of the bodies were found. Oh, my God. Because remember, at this point, we'd only found five. Because there were four still missing, right? Yeah. So they were discovered buried in the snow in a ravine about 75 meters deeper in the woods than this tree. And their bodies told a drastically different story than the others in the group. Really? So three of them had fatal injuries, including Nikolai Thibobrignoles, who had suffered significant skull damage just moments before his death. Oh, this is the one I was thinking of. I knew someone had significant skull damage. Yeah. Ludmila Dubanina and Semyon Zolotaryov had massive, major chest fractures that could only have been caused by an immense force. And is like comparable to that of getting hit by a car. Oh, my God. how damaged their chests were. These wounds... Especially the fact that they were appearing in such a way without damage to the soft tissue. So their rib cages, their organs, these injuries are all internal and they're devastated. But the skin isn't broken. There's not damage to their skin. That's so weird. And it's very similar to the type of trauma that would result from, like, the shockwave of a bomb. Oh. You know, energy hitting you. And breaking the more rigid um, parts of you. But again, because your skin's more elastic, it not tearing. Okay. By far the most gruesome part of this entire incident, Dubanina was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of her skull bone were all removed. But it didn't look like scavengers? No. Also, how is part of your skull removed? Uh, I imagine, like, the face tissue around it was removed, so it's like skull bone and just oh. a chunk of your skull. I don't know. 
The body of Alexander Kulevatov was also found with the three of them, but he did not have the severe wounds that they did. This second group of bodies suggested that the hikers died at drastically different times. Oh, really? And it looked like this group had been making use of the clothes of the people who died before them. So Dubanina's foot... Yeah, that was something I mentioned. Yeah, and Dubanina's foot was wrapped in a piece of Krivonyshenko's wool pants. Zolotaryov was found in Dubanina's faux fur coat and hat, and they were wearing the other people's clothing. You know, their friends died, and they're like, okay, well, she has a coat. We need those clothes. So I'm going to wear it. Another thing to note is their clothing also had significant levels of radiation. They're radioactive. Yeah. Which is also a thing, because of course this can't get any weirder. Right. Make it radioactive. Can your clothes be radioactive, but your body not? I think, like, clothing and fabrics will hold on to radiation longer than, like, organic material. Like a body. Meat. Yeah. So due to the absence of a guilty party, the inquest was closed in May of 1959, which was only a few weeks after the last four bodies were discovered. The investigation concluded that an unknown compelling force had caused the deaths, and then the files were archived and classified. That is not a good enough explanation at all. Nope. So when the files finally became accessible in the 90s, in the post-Soviet era... Wait, this is... After the Soviet Union collapsed, the articles became unsealed and available. So this real mystery didn't start to truly unfold until the 90s? Not really. I didn't know that. It's a pretty recent thing. I had no idea. In the, like, immediate vicinity, it was always a, what happened? Of course. But the, like, global phenomenon of the Dyatlov Pass is a recent thing. I did not realize that. I thought there were questions immediately. I didn't... No. I did not remember that they had sealed the files. Well, and they'd sealed them, and once they became available and accessible, parts of the files were missing. Of course they were. Of course. Like, honestly, though, Mm -hmm. who is surprised? Like, there are always parts of files that are missing with some type of case where someone wants to keep something hidden. Oh, absolutely. So, early on, many people suspected that their deaths were the result of an ambush by the local Monsi tribes that lived in the area. Oh. Because a sudden attack would account for why they fled their tent, why it was in such disarray, and... You know, maybe could do more to explain the damage to the second group of bodies, but this explanation fizzled very quickly. The Monsi people are very peaceful. They don't go out attacking hikers. And So that would would have been very out of their character to do. Yeah. And one, the evidence in the past did not support some kind of violent human conflict. There didn't look to be a fight. And also, the damage that was done to their bodies, this exceeded the blunt force trauma that a human can do. Right. There's no way for a person to hit or throw or use a weapon that does as much damage as was done to them. Right. Also, 
the only footprints found were from the hikers themselves. So this theory pretty quickly it it went dissolves away. quickly. Then investigators were thinking that it most likely was a swift and violent avalanche, which the sound of snow collapsing, which is an early warning of an avalanche, could have frightened them and been like, oh shit, we need we to go. go. There's going to be an right avalanche. Now. Yeah. Which is, you know, why they're undressed, why they're sprinting towards the trees. And an avalanche would have been powerful enough to inflict these injuries on the second group, but... There was, again, a lot of controversy with this because, first off, we've talked about how experienced they are. They're not the kind of group that's going to camp in a spot that's vulnerable to avalanches. Yeah. And also, there's the fact that when the investigators found the bodies, there was no evidence that an avalanche had occurred any time recently. There was no damage to the tree line. There was no debris. Well, and they were found, like, in the forest amongst the trees, right? Uh, Yeah, all except... Um, the, f- the first few. The... Yeah. yeah. Well, because then it's like, obviously there couldn't have been an avalanche if the trees are still standing and they're not covered in feet of snow. Exactly. And also, no avalanches had been recorded at the site before, and there have never been any since. So, avalanches doesn't seem... It's It's one of the things that, like at the base level, seems the most likely. But when you really look at it... Doesn't make sense. I don't think an avalanche is possible there. Because not every mountainside or sloped area with snow can have an avalanche. I mean, there, there has to be some fairly specific criteria to create an area where snow can not only build to that level, but can give way suddenly. Right. Other investigators also began to look at the idea that these deaths were the result of an argument among the group that got out of hand, possibly maybe related to like a romantic encounter, which is why they were naked. But first off, people that knew them were like, no, they're good friends. They're not going to like murder each other, which to be fair, no one is like interviewed after murder (laughs) being like, oh, I know. I could have fucking told y'all two weeks ago that that man was going to snap and kill all these people. They're always like, they were such good friends, I just... You know, I never would have thought it from them. They were... That was a nice couple. Well, and I will say, as you keep going through these theories, I keep remembering the victim who had no eyes and tongue. And I'm like, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? Yeah. Literally. How do you explain that? And, like, maybe they were pecked out by birds... But you were saying there's no evidence of that. Also, again, you know, this idea of this fight, the most compelling part is they would not have been able to inflict this damage on them. Oh, right. A human couldn't do it. The damage they had was more than what a human could do. So without any real public answers to all these weird-ass questions, all kinds of insane theories started flowing around over the next 50 years and more. But the Soviet government's very sudden closing of the case kind of puts them as the most popular culprit in the minds of a lot of conspiracy theorists. Yeah, absolutely. So in the area, orange spheres were sighted in the sky by other hikers that were, you know, miles away, but it's out in the open. They were definitely UFOs. 
Definitely. Well, maybe. Um, they weren't. But, you know, a group of other hikers 50 miles away saw these orange spheres over the area where the Diet Wolf Pass incident happened that night. And a lot of people explain this away as R7 intercontinental missile launches. Also note the fact that their campsite was on the pathway from the Balikonor Kosmodorn in Jayornaiba Guba, which is a Soviet nuclear testing ground. Oh, yes. So that is the theory I think happened. I think they were victims of Soviet military testing, and I think that's what explains some of the injuries, the damage to the bodies from a bomb-like shockwave, possibly. I think it explains the radiation. I think that would explain just a lot of the damage to the victims, and I think it fits very well with why the government was so keen to close the investigation. Yes. So that's the theory I most agree with. Well, and I also feel like not only does it add credence to the fact that they closed it so quickly, but also that evidence has never come out. Like, like that it's being kept under wraps. Like, this is something that may never be solved because it was the government's fault, and they're never going to admit that. Absolutely. Because how many times in history has there been a nuclear fuck-up, and they, the whole truth is not out there? Oh, yeah. Well, and to me, this theory just, it hits basically all the marks. Are there still questions? Absolutely. I'm still wondering about the eyes and tongue, just gonna say. Same. That's, that's to me the only one that really doesn't fit. But other theories range from the group getting attacked by aliens, a karabatic wind, which is... What? So karabatic winds are really strong wind gusts that rush down mountains from like the different layerings of air and shit and it could explain why they sprinted out of the tent but to me not anything else no i'm like does the wind cut off your tongue and rip out your eyeballs but only one of you yes it does there's also theories that it was a yeti i mean that's what i'm thinking because of the skull injuries that a yeti like picked him up or like yetis are really strong so internal damage picking them up but the footprints no, yetis, they sweep it up. That makes they sense. They use their yeti brooms. Uh, actually, you've changed my mind. Yeah. They so, have yeti brooms. In 20... They have yeti brooms, and <laughs> that's why the trees were broken, because it was for the broomsticks. Uh, yeah, they were yeah, covering up yeah, their footprints. No, I... They're, like, yeah, really no, tall. That, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But no, it doesn't. It's awful. Um, in 2014, there was a Discovery Channel special called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives. Which I hate. <laughs> I hate that title. Um, this is the kind of stuff that I fucking hate on, like, the Discovery Channel, History Channel, National Geographic, when they do weird fucking shit like this. And I'm like, that's not... What, what are you doing? What? <laughs> so, in this special, they explored the theory that the Dyatlov group was killed by a mank or a Russian Yeti. And their reasoning for it is mind-numbingly stupid, in my point of view. Because it's the premise that their injuries were such that only a creature with superhuman strength could have caused them. And I'm like, that's literally... No. What? Like, if something... Like, oh, humans aren't able to do this. 
obviously it must be a big human. No. <laughs> a big human. <laughs> Bitch, it's a it's an avalanche or a missile or whatever. But it wasn't like, an avalanche. I wasn't there. I can't I don't know. Maybe it was a fucking Yeti and I'm just wrong as shit, but I'm pretty sure it's one, not, because I don't think it Yetis exist. It was Brian exist. the Yeti. He's just like oh pissed. He has no like he didn't get any street cred because no one like realized he did it, and so he's still like the loser of the Yetis. He was trying to like prove himself, but it failed. And all the other Yetis are like, it was an avalanche. It was a Russian missile test. Um I think it was a karabatic wind. And he's like, guys, it was me. <laughs> and no one believes him. Um, I don't think that's uh, how it works. I also just, again, hate the idea that they're like, humans couldn't do this. It was something that's like a human, but uh, stronger, like a maybe a Yeti. <laughs> like, sh- shut up. It was aliens. I mean, you already told me about the orange lights in the sky. Those were definitely the UFOs. The aliens... Definitely not missiles. But, I will um, say, I'm definitely on the same page of the fact that the, this was government interference and nuclear testing yeah. that went wrong. Which, I again, we don't know. That's what makes these cases paranormal, is that we have no fucking idea. Yours has been more paranormal than mine. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay, maybe. I don't know. I mean, exorcisms are also very paranormal. Demons and ghosts and shit. It's true. It's just demons. um, It's not ghosts. But yeah. Well, yeah. So in February of 2019. Oh my God. Earlier this this year. year? Yeah. The Russian authorities announced that they were reopening the investigation. But they were only considering three possible explanations. That is called tunnel vision. Yeah. Yeah. These three being an avalanche, a snow slab avalanche, or a hurricane, which I think it, the translation is off because hurricanes are tropical in form of the ocean, not over landlocked Russia. Right. So, so I'm going to go with a storm, but it was quoted as hurricane. So I imagine storm or squall is more likely, though. And the possibility of this being a criminal investigation has been completely discounted. Which, I mean, on the level of did a high... Because there's also theories that, like, a person came upon them and murdered all of them. And I I think with the footprints, with the timing of the deaths being so different, and just a lot of the stuff that happened, I don't agree with it being... A criminal investigation. One thing I do want to note that um, I didn't mention earlier is I think one big reason, other than the eyes and tongue being removed, that I don't think it was an avalanche is on one hand, they're saying, you know, an avalanche could explain why, you know, these massive bodily injuries to the last group of victims found. But they were also the ones wearing the clothes of their people. So they oh, they died last, yeah. is what it looks like. If an avalanche hit, one... They're not going to have like, time to Like, an avalanche is what clothes. caused this injuries. They would have probably died first and would not... Yeah, they wouldn't have grabbed the other people's right. clothes. I would imagine the Yuris by the tree would probably have been the last die, but... that's my big thing with why i don't think it was an avalanche 
is if you're saying the avalanche is what caused these massive injuries, why were they the ones with everyone else's clothes on them? Why were they the ones who died last, which is what it looks like, if the avalanche, which is the event that caused all of this, is what you're saying gave them these massive injuries, unless there were two avalanches? I don't I don't know if they happen in series, you know, if like one happens and it know. like weakens the rest of the snow. So maybe there was an avalanche that got them all out. They died. And then this group of four final survivors was killed by a second avalanche. But you're still I don't you're know. talking about the avalanche. However, the trees weren't fallen. There was no extra exactly. snow. Like, there I don't. There weren't trees. And also, there's never been an avalanche in this area before. No. And there has never been one since. And I feel like if the storm that went through was so bad that it could have caused multiple avalanches in an area that's never seen them, that would be more noteworthy. Yes. Because from everything I've read, the storm was just a storm. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, you know, this crazy once-in-a-lifetime snowstorm. It was just a storm. So, yeah, the avalanche theory to me, I'm like, "Uh, I don't really, to me that doesn't, sit well there's too many unanswered questions with it well i will say Um, i'm really interested to see what you know quote unquote new evidence starts to come out as they uh dive into you know reopening these this case i had no idea they reopened it and i am extremely curious and like almost want to literally put a google alert on my email to get notifications about this so to this day A scientific explanation for the deaths of these nine people has yet to be nailed down, and many publications and works have been inspired by this incident, some being investigative journalism, some being entirely fiction. I mean, there's movies, documentaries, the whole fucking shebang. Yeah. But the mountain pass where they set their last campsite up has been renamed for the group's leader, Igor Dyatlov. And so that is why this is known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. Yeah. Wow. Boom. (laughs) I know. I don't even know (laughs) how to react after that because I am just as interested in this case as you are and like have read a lot and it just, it blows my mind. Like it just, it's such a mind fuck, this case. And it does stretch people to imagine the paranormal because of all of the Mm -hmm. circumstances i think it's one of those cases that is most significant of yeah okay uh maybe i could understand a paranormal explanation when you are someone as yourself who is such a skeptic i mean this is one of the few ones where i don't know i mean i honestly cannot conceive of a natural occurrence doing this no you know because even well hey the the theory i hold before you get any further let's just say we're obviously jumping into postmortem yeah we're in (laughs) postmortem but in my case the theory i hold to most likely be true is the idea of a weapons test but it still leaves so many questions open I don't know. I mean, I strongly don't believe that it was yetis or aliens right. or a wormhole or Pitbull and Shakira 
making Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 disappear. I don't think... First off, that's a real theory. Are you serious? Um, that... Oh, fuck, was it Pitbull and Shakira? I think it was the two of them. Um, apparently caused the disappearance of MH370. Um, well, that is stupid and insulting. I yeah, I don't think they did. Uh, but that's about I the meant, same like, level insulting of insulting to the victims. Oh, I mean, absolutely. But I hold the aliens and yetis to like that same level of like, mm, no. Well, and the thing is, if it were nuclear testing, then why were there like two different times of death? Like that's yeah. you know, like was it multiple bombs and or missiles and half the group just happened to be far enough away to where they could go and pick up the jackets that were radioactive and put them on and and then there was another I, blast and I don't know. Yeah, one of the theories I saw was that it was like smaller parachute bombs oh. being tested in the area. But to me, it starts veering into the territory of like a working backwards theory like this is what happened let's fit the things let's create reasons that cause these and then put them together instead of being like what's something that could have happened and did this it's let's individually explain all these injuries and things and then put it together because right. uh, it's like mini cluster bombs oh one went off and that's what scared them out and then they died of exposure and then another one went off and that's what killed them and i'm like uh, maybe but it feels too much like i don't know it I, I don't know necessarily how to explain it but it feels like almost it too conveniently would explain everything i agree like it's an entire scenario set up that if those doing the weapons testing had the goal of creating this exact outcome yes this is what happened but, but it, for it to be like an accident or a scripted. coincidence yeah it is too scripted yeah well and i i will um, say when it comes to our topic for this episode yours i think is the front runner because there's still so much mystery surrounding it and with mine you know even the church went back and said that she was yeah. mentally ill that it was not she was not possessed by yeah. demons like even though there are still a lot of family members that do believe that is the case um i think because of that aspect and then a lot of i don't know the intensity of yours i, I do think yours was <laughs> the intensity it was the more intense case and yeah yeah because there is nothing like the dad love pass no and in your case I mean, there's no part of me that is like, I wonder what happened. There's parts of me that wonder the specifics, you know, did she have a small brain tumor? Did she have an injury to her her temporal lobe? But I'm fully convinced that it's a mix of mental illness and epilepsy or something affecting her temporal lobe. That's, to me, not a question. That's what the case is in mine i I literally don't know No, yours i feel like we could literally sit here and talk for hours about the possibilities and not make an Mm. inch forward in our discussion no 
Well, so with that, I will pick next week's topic, which I kind of already was going to since this week ended up being a Patreon pick, but now I definitely will, and we'll go from here. Perfect. So, well, thank you guys so much for listening. Let us know what you think. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This is the number one way that you guys can help us out. Get the word out there. Leave a review so others know to come and listen to us. And, yeah. Thank you so much, Aubrey, for the topic. Yes. That I finally got to do this case. I feel like y'all can understand why I've wanted to do Diet Wolf Pass. Of but course. But I've also not really been like, oh, it doesn't really fit. Because it doesn't. But, <laughs> but now that I weaseled it in with this you topic. Did, so and thank it's you, Aubrey. But also make sure to like and follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Check out our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. Check out our merch store where you can get some awesome blood and wine merch. Yes. And um yeah, this is Blood and Wine signing off, XOXO. y'all. XOXO. Bye you guys. Bye. Yeah.